This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. I don't have to tell you, a lot of people have a problem with the word conspiracy. In fact, there are people who are nervous about coming on this radio program simply because of the name. But let me tell you something. I, I don't apologize for the name or the word conspiracy. And of course, those with you with ears to hear already know the term conspiracy theory was created by the CIA in the wake of the brutal murder of JFK in order to, to discredit anyone who was in opposition to the Warren Commission whitewash. And so this term conspiracy theory now uh, used by the mainstream media in particular as a way of stifling free and healthy discourse and uh, used as a bludgeon to discredit anyone who again stands in opposition to orthodoxy. It's also, of course, conspiracy, that is, a legitimate concept in law, the collusion of two or more people pursuing a legal means to affect some illegal or immoral end. Conspiracies are a matter of public record. Enough said. So I'm here with your help to take the word back. Uh, in fact, if we're quacks and nutters for believing that there really is present in this world some elite cabal backstage pulling the strings in this grand puppet show, then the great Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli was a nutter and a quack. Remember, it was Disraeli who said governments do not govern, but merely control the machinery of government being themselves controlled by the hidden hand. The hidden hand. We're going to talk about the hidden hand tonight. The hidden hand, for example, that controls the UFO ET issue. This hidden hand, perhaps, a group of individuals, some call them Majestic Twelve, who were given enormous power and influence by the president at some point after Roswell, to co-opt the mainstream media and other organizations to participate in a cover-up of the ET presence, 
to recover alien technology from UFO crash sites and funnel that technology into the private sector, the military-industrial complex, where it would be re-engineered and reproduced, advanced, weapon, uh, advanced propulsion and weapon systems, free energy, much, much more. Some of this technology may have been given willingly to elite groups or people inside the U.S. and elsewhere in exchange for something. Maybe that something was the right for certain alien species to abduct humans, experiment on them, perhaps even enroll humans unwittingly in some perverse alien-human hybridization program. These are just a few of the UFO ET-related issues that are explored in a groundbreaking new film called The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact and the Government Cover-Up. And the filmmaker of The Hidden Hand, James Carmen, joins me in a few moments. But first, let me welcome once again to the studio my colleague Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland News Network, who's going to join in the conversation tonight and take some of the load off of me as I recover from a rather nasty bout of pneumonia. Victor Vigiani in studio. How are you, my old friend? Just fine. Good to have you. For the next hour, we're going to, uh, to be speaking with quite a remarkable filmmaker. Uh, James Carmen works as a producer in New York City. He's investigated the paranormal all his life. His work has been showcased at the MOMA and many film festivals all over the world. He recently won an EBE award and four other awards. That's five Five pieces of hardware for this documentary that we're discussing tonight. The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up. Currently, he's working on a new film titled Superconscious, and, and time permitting, we can touch on that as well. James Carmen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, thanks for having me. And again, uh, congratulations on uh, The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up. Uh, one of the things that struck me uh, almost immediately was, uh, thank God... Uh, that you were able, uh, you know, to get Dr. Roger Lear, who we just lost, and of course Bud Hopkins, who we lost uh, a, a while ago as well, mm-hmm. uh, on film, uh, because you know we can now put this sort of in a time capsule, uh, this documentary, uh, because you really gathered together all the essential people. I mean, all the ingredients here are here. Everyone from, of course, uh, Richard Dolan to, as I say, Dr. Dr. Roger Lear, Bud Hopkins. They're all in here. Anyone and anyone in the UFO disclosure movement is in the hidden hand. Was that a, um, a challenge, sort of, you know, rounding everybody up? And, and, and it was. I mean, it was something where you just have to be patient. You know, it took me a while to get Whitley Straber, and um, you know, Bud was ill, so I had to wait till he felt better, and I just kind of plodded along and did it. You know, David Ike. I wasn't even sure I could. Um, interview him, but I just flew to where he was, and then I called him, and I just asked him, said, hey, you know, can I interview you? And he said, okay. And so that was pretty easy, and and he was very, uh, very eloquent. Now, I mean, I I have a very limited experience in putting together documentaries. My TV show is sort of a documentary style, but I mean, I go in there, we go in there, it's a half hour with a, you know, a, a pretty clear idea. But I know when often when you, when you're making documentaries, you don't know necessarily what the film is going to be about when you go into it. It sort of revo- reveals itself. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the case with A Hidden Hand? Did you, I mean, did you set out to make such a comprehensive film that was going to cover everything from, you know, soup to nuts in, the, in terms of the UFO issue? 
Not really. The thing is, is I started making a totally different film. Um, are you familiar with Al Bielik? Yes, of course. Well, he was the Philadelphia experiment. Good, yeah, he was a very good friend of mine, and um, so I started making kind of almost like a narrative style film with him and a, an abductee called Gloria Hawker, where people would talk about these subjects, but it was more like two people just hanging out, talking, giving, having a conversation, and um, you know. I, when I would show rough cuts of that film, it, it was too hard for people to understand what was real and what wasn't, you know, because I was playing kind of with um, different film genres in a way, like the narrative and the documentary. And so I, I was seeing that it wasn't working. So I just decided to do as straight a documentary as I could um, on the subject when I figured out it wasn't working what I did initially, you know. Right. Let me throw it over to my uh, my colleague here, Victor Vigiani. How are you doing, James? Hey, Victor. How's it going? <laughs> Just fine. Uh, in, in watching this thing, I've watched it now uh, about three times, and every time I watch it, something else creeps out. It doesn't matter exactly what uh, what button you push or where you where you join the whole narrative, as you say. Something uh, eloquent comes out, and something very stirring comes out. I- I'd like to ask you, what... Um, and you and I have talked a couple of times about this. Uh, what really um, convinced you to say yes to doing this? What, what, what said, yeah, I've got to do this? There's always some sort of internal uh, compulsion to do it. What was it that, that uh, turned, your, turned your crank on this one? Well, it's a couple of things. I'd, I'd, I'd been living in Europe for quite a while, and I came back and I did, shot a film in L.A., and it was like it was an underground film, but I thought, my God, America's changed. This is like bizarre, you know, and I would just I kind of didn't really realize I was in this subculture. Mm-hmm. And then I get, when moved back to Berlin and then I came back to America and I, I was producing um, healing DVDs. And uh, a lot of the people that were there, I noticed there was a group of women who kind of would gra- gather around each other at the breaks and they would be crying and they would be distraught and they would be talking about losing pregnancies and they were talking about hybrid babies and um, I could see that this was something very real to them and something that was um, very traumatic and uh, you know at first I just dismissed it because it was too bizarre too weird and then I started meeting other people that said they were involved in kind of like secret projects or had been trained in secret pro- projects and stuff like that and, and you know the thing that's about the, the whole hybridization program. I mean, it, it's such a visceral thing. It's kind of like, we, we, you know, we're, we're so, um, in, a, in a way, we have so much innate love for our own species, I think. I mean, at least I do. And then the kind of the idea that we don't have sovereignty or maybe our sovereignty is being us, usurped and also our genetic teleology, so today, our, our genetic evolution is being hijacked. Um, that was such a visceral feeling for me. That kind of gave me the impetus then to make the film. Yeah, I, I noticed that um, in, in watching it, there is a, uh, in, in essence, there is a basic simplicity to the whole, to the whole, uh, I guess, the whole film, the whole documentary. But there also was this this juxtaposition, almost like a crash, like of cultural madness of what on earth is this all about versus the the substantive data that you put together. Um, how did you how did you reconcile that? You you've got this kind of really weird um, in terms of the hybrid and all that kind, of, and you've got UFO data. How did you decide to meld it all together into into basically simple evidentiary evidence of a very very complex uh, matter? 
Well, it was hard because I didn't, you know, you know, I remember like when I was with my editor and we were talking about different types of extraterrestrials and when we when we were mentioning that there are insectoid kind of ETs and people say that they look like praying mantis, I mean, she was just beside herself, you know, she was just thinking there's no way that anyone could look at this and, and take it seriously. And um, I just, I just said, well, look at this is what's being reported. And, you know, I, I would, then I looked at myself kind of as a journalist and, and to go out there and seeing what different groups, different camps are reporting what their interests are. And I would just put it out there and without you know, being having fear that mm -hmm. it might look too ridiculous or might be too too harshly criticized, or even become more and more bizarre as things went along and people just could not accept it. Yeah. yeah. Well, where are you? Know, you? Like, like, I, like I had a, a you know a very very big producer look at it, and you know he's you know he was head of the producers guild and 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 um, you know when it came to the part um, where Whitley Straber was talking about it an anal probe where he was taken, he just stopped the movie and he said, I can't look at this. I just can't take this seriously. You know, but then he looked up anal probe on the internet and he saw that there were like millions of entries for it. You know, so it was obviously something that was either going on or there was a lot of interest in it or, but he still couldn't, in his mind, he couldn't go further than that because he just, it was kind of beyond the realm of, of what he could consider as rational. James, what about for you personally? I mean, did you, I, I guess, I gather from what you're saying, you went into this sort of as a dispassionate observer, maybe uh, employing certain journalistic um, uh, techniques and so forth. But where are you now after hearing, you know, Whitley Strieber talk about essentially being raped by aliens or hearing, uh, you know, these women describing having their alien hybrid babies taken from them? Uh, where are you now? I mean... Uh, are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely a believer. And, and the thing is, is I, w I don't think I was ever dispassionate um, I w because I, I had a lot of compassion for the people I interviewed. I should have used so the word disinterested, as in, as in unbiased, is what I meant to say. Right. Um, um, yeah, because when you, when you interview these people, you see they're, they're being truthful, and you see that they've gone through something. And... Um, and it really affects them. I, I remember this one woman who's in my film. Her name is Joni Stroher, and um, you know she's she's quite interesting. She's had all kinds of abductions and um, um, quite traumatic. But I interviewed her grandmother, who was 86 years old at the time, um, Puerto Rican. She worked as a missionary in Nicaragua and um, Haiti all of her life, but she'd been having these experiences all of her life. And this was the first time she ever could speak about it. And she, you can't imagine how she cried and what it was, a relief it was for her. And, um, you know, just shortly after that, she died. Oh so in a way, I feel, I feel blessed that, I, you know, I could at least provide that kind of a um, catalyst for her that, you know, um, some healing could take place. Right. And I'm sure, you know, uh, many people who have seen the film, who have had an experience, uh, you know, sort of achieved the same sort of cathartic moment thanks to your your film listen we'll take a time out james carmen is here the hidden hand alien contact and the government cover-up and our good friend victor vigiani in studio the conspiracy show back after this there is an overwhelming abundance of evidence 
in terms of documentation showing that there has been an unexplained phenomenon interacting with the militaries of this world for a very long time. That this phenomenon has been taken seriously by the highest level national security people and that they've enveloped the topic in secrecy. Um, they've misrepresented it to the public time and again. It's obvious that there's something important happening here with technology that frankly is not supposed to exist. We are back uh, speaking with filmmaker James Carmen, and the documentary is The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact and the Government Cover-Up. And it, uh, as I say, it covers the, the UFO ET issue from uh, soup to nuts, uh, everything from just sort of the hard evidence uh, of UFO sightings all the way to the, uh, the alien agenda, I guess, if you will, uh, alien abductions, um, uh, we, he also covers, uh, you know, experimentation and, uh, uh, it's just, it's very compelling and, uh, very succinct and comprehensive and, uh, a really a wonderful sort of document that could be placed in a, in a time capsule, uh, because some of the people in this film are no longer with us. Dr. Roger Lear, Bud Hopkins and, and others. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is in studio. I'll throw it back over to you, Victor. I just wanted to, uh, Richard alluded to it uh, earlier regarding, you know, Bud and, uh, and, and Dr. Roger Lear, uh, both having passed away, um, and it seems like you, <laughs> you know, synchronicity, call it, what you, call it what you want, you were in the right place at the right time on virtually every set of circumstances. I, I, re- I recall uh, Richard Dolan telling me about uh, your encounter uh, or your attempt to encounter Dr. Uh, uh, Edgar Mitchell and, and trying to connect with him. And things all just fell into place, didn't they? They did. You know, sometimes I had to be a little bit patient, and um, but it did. It all fell into place, and um, I'm I'm very happy about that. And uh, I, you know, the film took a lot longer to make than I thought, but um, you know, I, sometimes you just have to to stay with it until you think it's right, and then you can let it go. You you also talk about exploring the terrain. Uh, uh, of the of this whole situation, and as you look at it from a, if you stand back and look at what you did, uh, what's what's the one thing? I know it's difficult to pick that out because you spent so many hours and days and months putting this all together. Is there one sort of uh, taller edifice that stands out in your mind in what you did to say to people, journalists, be it whoever who watched this, this is this is what I wanted to show them. Is there one thing or two things that you really uh, are, are kind of a seminal situations for you? Well, I think you know. Just generally, I think a lot of times we really think we understand reality and we know what's going on. And a lot, the more educated you are, the more people tend to have think that they've got it figured out. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, we don't have anything figured out. I mean, really, I mean, when we look at this reality that we see in front of us, it's a, it's a minuscule amount of what's actually out there that we know about. When we talk about physics and string theory, we postulate that there has to be more dimensions than we're actually perceiving and it's interacting with ours all the time and if we're not perceiving it then that doesn't mean it's not there and so i think basically what i wanted to do with this film is just to kind of engender open-mindedness about this subject that you know perhaps 
it is really going on, and there's a lot more going on. Obviously, it's very complex. There's many different sides to it. Um, but uh, it's more like if you the, – the illusion of knowledge, in, it, it impinges you more than, than if you just come to the subject with an open mind and then, you know, see what, what you feel once you've seen some of the facts, some of the, the – um, some of the witnesses with their testimony. Yeah, I, I, it really kind of uh, never ceases to amaze me that when you start getting into all of this, uh, the, the one thing that comes out is uh, the inadequacy of the human species when compared to the uh, extremely compelling and, and mountain of evidence that's, that, that's out there. And I guess that leads me to the question of, I guess uh, we'll get into the politics of it a little bit later on if you want, but this whole idea of, of uh, you know, putting together this kind of tome that you did and, and, and realizing that once you are, um, once you've assembled it all, you're going to meet uh, a huge amount of resistance in the public, be it through public officials, just the general public in, 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 gen- in general. Um, I don't want to talk necessarily about the resistance, but how do you account for the resistance? What, what's, what's, what's propelling this whole idea that automatically, once you hear the kind of information that you're putting forward, it's, it's almost a, a human instinct to dismiss it? How do you account for that? Well, I think people call it cognitive dissonance, and it's when something comes across your worldview that doesn't fit into it, you just kind of for a minute you get a little bit disconcerted and confused, and then you just forget about it, and it's not there anymore. You know, and I think we see this all the time. If you look at um, archaeology, you know, there's so many different artifacts. There's so many things that don't fit into the classic model, and it's just dismissed. It, it doesn't fit in, so it's not even allowed. And, um, you know, we have, you know, metal balls that are two million years old that have been found in South Africa. That has no correlation at all to our theories of the evolution of man in, in human culture and civilization. So it's discredited, discarded. And so I think people do that all the time. And, and I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, I have some very credible people in the film, and I'll show it to, you know, a friend of mine. They'll come and they'll see, you know, Paul Hellyer, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, you know, very credible people, and they'll just dismiss it right out of hand, regardless of who they are, it's because it's just craziness, because they can't accept it. I think it's self-preservation, yeah. mm-hmm. in part. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to have their entire reality disassembled before them, you know, right before their eyes. Yeah. That's right. pretty hard to take. That's right, yeah. Uh, I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the, uh, the alien agenda, which is a huge topic. Um, but Hollywood seems to spend so much time, um, whether it's intended or not, is it confusing the masses in terms of what, you know, the alien agenda is and are they wearing, are they, you know, coming to our rescue uh, to save us from environmental degradation and 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 so forth, or are they are they here to uh, you know to uh, dissect us and examine us like you know so many uh, lab mice? Uh, are you any closer after after hearing these riveting testimonies, uh, connecting the dots and determining what the alien agenda is? Um, I don't know if I'm closer. I think if you look at it in terms of um, not good or bad, like species-specific, that, you know, clearly everyone would be operating in their own interest, but then you have 
what I say, service to self and to service to others. And, and it seems like there are some ETs that have that idea of service to others and then others that are just, you know, doing what's best for them in, in terms of a species, much like we as humans do most of the time. You know, we're not really, most of the time we're not, if it's not your family, we're not that terribly concerned with other people or if it's not in your country or Whatever, if it's not in your species, we're not terribly concerned with the cows that we slaughter or the pigs that we slaughter or the fish, you know, and all the, 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 the lions and tigers that are becoming extinct. So um, it's kind of, in a way, I, I think of it as an ignorance. And um, I think, you know, some of the ETs, they, they, they would have that ignorance in, in not being concerned about others. And, and other, some of them do, and I think that there has been some intervention, you know, to, to I, would, I would say to save us from destroying ourselves, not to save us from our, our fate as it may be developing, but um, it seems like there is a lot of interest in our um, atomic weapons, and um, there has been some indication that perhaps we have been saved from, from blowing ourselves up. And, and how about uh, in terms of the nature of the government cover-up? Are you any closer or have you connected any dots uh, in terms of uh, perhaps, you know, how deep the, uh, the cover-up goes and, and why? Why are they, they keeping a lid on this? Well, I think you could look at it from many different levels. Obviously, there's the, the technology exchange and the reverse engineering of technology and, and wanting to hoard that so you have more power and more of a um, advantage over other groups, other nations, perhaps. But on the other hand, if it, I think if you look at human history, you know, it, it looks like we have been created and we've had this interaction for a long time with ET. And so, you know, I don't think that they ever kind of just Oh, totally let us go as the experiment and, and let us run wild. So I think in the background there's always been some kind of monitoring, some kind of control. And um, it's, for, for most people, it's, it's totally hidden from sight. And, and, um, but I, it's just a feeling I have that there is still some control and manipulation going on. And, of course, you know, being a, like a, a normal middle-class person, you don't always have access to where those um, – those scenes where the human and ET are meeting might be, but um, it's just my feeling that that's happening. With, with so many of the, the, the differences of opinion on, as Richard was alluding to earlier, regarding to whether this is invasive, whether it's enlightening, and I know the, um, the, the, contact, the contactee experience is, is wide and varied on that front in terms of is it a negative experience, is it a positive um, if, when, when you get right down to the nature of the cover-up, irrespective of what some of the contactees are going through, um, in your investigation, have you ever spoken to anyone, either on the record or off the record, regarding the technologies um, and also, too, the, the, the medical and, and military technologies that may be, or even genetic technologies, that are being uh, kept secret from us? And my big concern is that there is a, a secret pathway to, a, let's say, a cure for cancer or the reasons why autism is so prevalent in our society today have you been given any indication uh, or have you you know develop any yeah. ideas as to about these kinds of things well i i know you know i've talked to some people that were intelligence folks you know um and they've 
they've told me definitely about the technology exchange programs that are ha actively happening right now. It's not reverse engineering, it's technology exchange programs happening. And um, there's also a lot of language programs that are going on to where we study basic kind of syntax and how language works so we can talk to ET. You know, it's, a lot of times it's a, it's a um, telepathic experience, but not everyone in the military okay. can do that. And so they, they were... And not all ETs, you know, are only, some of them uh, aren't as psychic. And so I know there's a lot of work that's been done in terms of communication with language, which I find very, very interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, if, if Ingo Swan was a, a good friend of mine, and he, he told me, you know, he did a lot of work uh, remote viewing E.T., and he, that was what he was, one of the things he was um, supposed to do is, is remote view E.T. And, and kind of give feedback about what they were up to. And and he, he said also that he did see some E.T.s here on Earth, and um, he called what they did E.T. plus. I mean, he just said <laughs> they were super, super psychic, and, you know, whenever he would... Yeah check in he would immediately leave otherwise they would automatically know him they and then they would be able to follow him and trace him and he did never want that because he felt that that was not a good thing for him it would leave him vulnerable and um the two times he did see et's here on earth as soon as he recognized he immediately turned around and left because he he didn't want to have any interaction with them they were they're very powerful. They looked human, but they're very powerful. James, listen, we're coming up on a break, and we'll uh, continue this conversation on the other side. Filmmaker James Carmen, The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up in studio. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zealand News Network. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The old-timers, they were there and presumably involved, and they had knowledge of the Roswell incident that they were afraid to talk about because they'd been threatened by authority, and they wanted to talk about it, and they didn't want to carry their knowledge to the grave. What they said, yes, the Roswell incident was real. It was truly an alien craft. Some that had observed bodies or been a part of that said, yes, there were bodies involved. We went to the Pentagon, and eventually we had confirmed that what we were telling was true. Uh, we're back uh, with uh, James Carmen, The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up. Victor Vigiani in Studio Zealand News Network here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, this is a shorter segment, so I, I, I wanted to pick up on a thread that you were uh, discussing in the uh, before the break. And that had to do with um, uh, being told by certain individuals with a background in intelligence about this technology exchange. And I really couldn't let that go by without pursuing that further. I mean, I, I'm trying to think back now watching the film. Uh, I don't, I mean, were any of the people that you're talking about in the film or was this background or off yeah, the record? No, they, they were in the film. Okay. These were the individuals that were in the film. Okay. And, and, um, for those who haven't seen the film, uh, and, and, uh, just, just give me a sense of, you know, who these people were, what, what level, uh, rank, uh, Well, the department. thing is, it's like, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, sometimes you're, you know, if you're an intelligence, you know, you're, you're kind of in it for life until you leave, right. uh, the military, and then sometimes even afterwards you're still in it. 
And, um, you know, the rank isn't always the most critical thing because sometimes they keep people at a lower rank so that, one, they're easier to control, and, two, if they were to say anything, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't seem as credible. Right, and, right. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Clifford Stone is someone who's, you know, he has a very, very interesting story. He said that, you know, part of what he was doing in, at NBC, you know, is, where you're tra- to, to train to pick up nuclear waste, actually, that his unit also, when there was a crash or UFO had gone down, he was, they were there to extract anything that was left of it. And if there were any bodies there, any beings that were alive, it was his job to interface with them telepathically. And he did that several times. And he said, he said that, you know, that's something that can't be trained. And so the, the military is looking for children that can do that and have these interactions. And he, and he said that, you know, ever since he was a boy, there was a, an Air Force captain that kind of followed him and befriended him and bought him comics and bought him books and befriended his parents. And, and even so when he went into the military, he failed his physical and he wasn't going to be able to get in, but they, they walked him in anyways, and um, it wasn't a problem. So, yeah, uh, Clifford, Clifford had a very, very disturbing story to tell, I know that. Um, you were talking to Richard a moment ago about once you're in intelligence, uh, you, you can't leave. It reminds me of the, the Eagles um, uh, song, Hotel California. You can check out, right. but you can never leave. <laughs> right. I, I wanted to ask you something about the, uh, it's a little more prosaic, but I, I think there's a story behind it too. The, the military person you have on the front cover, on the dust cover of, your, of the, of the, of the uh, DVD, um, is is half um, sort of general looking and half Nathan Twining, uh, alien looking. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you choose that metaphor? Um, well, you know, it's the idea that that the military is in bed with ET. It's kind of that idea that that there is a cooperation going on and interaction, and that's something you hear. I mean, like Lynn Buchanan, also someone who, you know had had ET contact as a child. He's very psychic. He was, you know, one of the the main remote viewers at Fort Meade. Uh, he's also a influencer. You know, he can influence people at a distance. Um, he also had, you know, met ET while he was in service. He was in intelligence. And so, you know, they also wanted him to work you know, deeper along those lines, and he said that he he refused because he says the more the deeper you work in in black projects, the less of a life you have, and everything is controlled. The security, everything is, it's you just have no freedom. You have people looking over your shoulder all the time, and 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 it's a drag. And so he he got out of that as much as he could, but he actually did have um, three instances where he saw um, ETs on, during his. Um, his time as an intelligence officer. James, uh, I neglected to ask you the obvious question. Are you an experiencer? I have had some, yes. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little? Well, I prefer not to, they, they're because it's very various. But I, I have, um, yes, I have um, seen UFOs. I've, I've also seen um, ETs. You know, that's, I'm, I'm glad, Richard, that you brought that up, because 
Um, I have done several presentations in the Toronto area, and what, what I do, and a number of people will sit in the back of the room and not say a word during the whole presentation, but they come up after the presentation and, and either begin to sob or teary-eye or say, listen, can I talk to you about stuff in regards to being taken or, or other kinds of experiences. So there are a lot of people out there like that. Absolutely. Listen, uh, let me jump in here because, uh, as I said, a short segment. We'll take a quick time out, come back, finish up. James Carmen, filmmaker, The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director, Zealand News Network. My name is Richard Serrett, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. The minute I checked in with the GCI site, he told me this is a hot mission who will be firing 24 rockets. And they said, we'd like to inform you that this object is an unidentified flying object. I got my final vector at altitude where I first picked up this huge blip, which is about the size of an aircraft carrier. I locked on immediately and I followed it up until about four seconds to go. And that's when it took off and accelerated to something like around Mach 10. Uh, and we are back uh, with James Carmen. Uh, last 10, 12 minutes here. Uh, the uh, documentary, The Hidden Hand, Alien Contact, and the Government Cover-Up. Uh, and it's won a lot of awards uh, from uh, the, U- the UK, Australia, uh, uh, the Ionian Film Festival in, in uh, Greece. Uh, and on and on it goes. How, uh, how can people get a, a copy of this? Well, go to hiddenhandthemovie.com and... Um under buy now, you can buy it on. Um, you can buy it from me as a DVD or download it on Vimeo. You can buy it from iTunes, Google, Amazon, Hulu. It's going to come out in May. It's going to come out in Netflix. So, yeah, there's, you know, just pick your 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 choice. You can. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this program when Victor joins me, uh, talking about the disclosure movement, and of mm-hmm. course, Victor. Uh, we'll often go down to Washington and uh, and sit in on the uh, uh, well the last um, the last uh, the citizen hearings, of course. Mm-hmm. And you know the the question that's always top of mind is when is disclosure coming, and is it is this sort of you know coming to a head, and and uh, who will be the president to disclose? What is, what is your sense in terms of the disclosure movement? How how close are we? Will it ever come? Does it matter? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it matters. I think um, it's a process. I think we are in the process of disclosure. It is coming out. I mean, obviously, a lot of countries, even Canada, has put out some UFO files. I- England, you know, uh, Brazil, Mexico, New Zealand, Denmark, UK. Um, so that there is some stuff coming out, the Cometa report with with France. Um, it seems so. It seems like it's a slow process. I think that there's a very, very big and power structure that it has no concern for it coming out because they have a lot to lose in terms of um, their power, their advantage, and all everything that they've done in terms of black project, in terms of financing their black projects, which is billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, and so no one wants to go there and talk about all that, and no one wants to talk about any kind of possible criminal activity that's been engaged in. So I think that there is a movement towards disclosure, but just as equally there's very very strong elements in power that want none of it to come out. Well, if we're talking about you know the, the coin that Richard Dolan um, uh, coined, the, you know, a, a breakaway or a separate civilization... 
mm-hmm. breakaway civilization here on Earth that is taking advantage of this alien technology for their for their own purposes. Uh, you know, they've got the money, they've got the resources, they've got their hands in the pockets of the of the politicians. Mm-hmm. How do you, in terms of disclosure, how can we how do we stand a chance in overcoming that if that's what we're up against? Well, I think we do under, uh, stand a chance in, in that what, one there's it's it's going on. It's a it's a dynamic process, and if there's a lot of people that are interested in looking at it and seeing that there's something to it, then that creates a movement that at some point people can't ignore. You know, just like last May, we had the um, the former Congress people talking to you know UFO experts, and I think a lot of them were convinced and. Th- thought that something was going on and that it's an issue that has to be addressed. And this could even be done in a stronger fashion. But that was an, another great step forward. And, um, you know, there's even in the UN, there's a little bit of um, openness there. So I think we just have to keep pushing and, and also keep researching. And, and um, you know, also ET generally once keeps totally in the background and does not come forth with much information. But, you know, that might change in where more specific individuals have more contact and more information in that way that, that um, we could break the, the hegemony in, in the, the truth embargo. And that's, that's where I want to go with you for the next moment or two, if I could, is that idea of uh, a VT or, or, or the consciousness of, of what ET means, of, of what that whole extraterrestrial consciousness is. Do you think that, that movement, that, that movement, I think it's being sort of um, undertaken by the, by the contactees where uh, that, that level of consciousness is going to become so strong that no matter what the government does, no matter what the government says, no matter what this power elite says, that, that conscious, it, consciousness is somehow going to overtake um, this whole idea of it uh, maybe not being disclosed, or that's not the right word, but being uh, prevalent or made known to all of humanity in some way that we just don't expect. Yeah, I think so, and I think it won't be kind of what what we might expect. That okay, you know, we we start seeing ET, and and you know, it becomes more prevalent that they're here. I think more it is is it's engendering a, a change of consciousness in humanity, and once that becomes stronger and stronger, it's going to be kind of become a wave that won't be controllable, and things will have to change. You know, otherwise, if if, if people don't adapt, then they'll be Relics just, be just left behind, yeah. yeah. When, when you talk to journalists, if you do, um, do you try to convince them or just sort of give them the facts? How do you deal with journalists who, who look at scones to this? Well, I work for a very large uh, news organization, and, um, you know, I can't talk to them because most of them don't take it seriously. There's really very few. You know, they just look at me askance, and it's kind of like, okay, you can do that, your stuff, as long as you, you do your job, but... You know, it's amazing that, you know, I've done this film and it's gotten some kind of akala and um, still no one has even asked me one question about it. And, I, you know, that's being around, mm-hmm. I, you know, I would say dozens of journalists. Not one of them has asked me a question or taken it seriously. Is that part of the, again, that, that co- cognitive dissonance or, as I call it, sort of self-preservation? Or is that part of, are you seeing sort of, the, the, the fingerprints of the control, the cover-up here? Well, the, you know, in, in, as far as I'm concerned, that is the cognitive dissonance. That's the fear. I think the cover-up, you know, that kind of Operation Mockingbird where 
kind of you you do see that you know there is like an interaction with the justice department and you know when in, whenever you start interacting then information starts flowing and but it, it really doesn't people censor themselves it's not like like um there's the editor is saying okay you know you guys can't write about this and this it's just clear that if people do that they're not going to be promoted or they won't go higher it's bad for your career so people don't even go there if you had two minutes with somebody and let's say it's maybe it's a, a, a colleague mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the journalism field and you had to put before them one piece of evidence i mean i go back to the the, the cover that uh, victor alluded to you've got um, it's uh you know this picture of a uh, a U.S. military figure, and, and uh, it's, it appears to be Nathan Twining. At least that's the the, the name on the uh, on the uniform. And of course, you know we, we know about the, the Twining, uh, the Twining memo, mm-hmm. uh, where he's uh, contacted a, a, another military colleague, and they're they're sort of going back and forth about these flying discs and the the maneuverability, and you know we don't have anything like this. I mean. Is it, a, is it a document like the Twining Memo, or is there something else, a piece of footage? If you had two minutes with somebody, what would you show them? Well, I think I'd show them a couple of those documents. You know, there's a, there's a Twining um, Memo. There's, you know, a CIA memo from, um, you know, a science director from 1952. There's FBI memo. There's, you know, even that, that when you talk about um, the U.K. bringing out a their documents that there was in 1957 that they were actually attacking a UFO to shoot it down, uh, presumably because it was over one of their bases. Um, I mean, that's compelling for me. You know, if if all of our national security agencies are concerned and worry about it, then you go that there's 13,000 sightings in the U.S. a year. That means there's a couple every day, and not that all of them are, are you know, ET craft, but there's a lot that aren't explained. And then you t- think about what's going on in the world, and then all the film footage, and then all these people that are t- talking unbeknownst to each other, kind of explaining the same stories, then, I mean, I think that's pretty compelling, that something's afoot. What about someone like Neera Isley? You, um, you addressed... Uh, you, you, you've talked to her, and since the age of four, she's been going through something. And I know, Niera, how would you interpret what she went through and, and the visceral things she's been through? This woman has been through, I just can't describe what is. Well, the thing is, this, again, she's someone who's, you know, an experiencer since she was a kid. So that's someone that they want because they want someone who has that contact, that ability to interact with ET. So they don't, they can't train that. So they take that person, and they bring them into the military, and then, then they start doing their control, their mind control, so that she won't remember actually what she's doing. But still, they have access to information with ET, and um, so I think it's it's harrowing. But I think that mind control is a big part of that. So. Um, there's no recourse back to the military in terms of them using her improperly. Mm-hmm. All right, listen, we've, um, I wish we could carry on this conversation. but it's uh, amazing. We've, yeah. Yeah, we've got to say goodnight. Listen, uh, James Carmen, again, congratulations on the hidden hand, alien contact, and the government cover-up. I appreciate your time tonight. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. It's, it's really been wonderful. And, Victor, always a pleasure. 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of both of you guys. Oh, I appreciate that. Terrific. Glad to have you with us. All okay. right. My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for production. Back next week, of course, everyone's talking about Russell Crowe and uh, Noah's Ark. We'll talk about the real Noah next week during Easter. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. Come on. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for allowing me into your home once again, and my wish for you, as always, is that wherever you are, you are safe, warm, dry, and well-fed. Years from now, I truly believe, that much of what is discussed on this program will emerge from the shadows, will cease to be banished to the late, late shift. Much of what we discuss on this program will be, dare I say, considered mainstream. Hell, you might even hear this stuff on the morning show or the drive home show. In fact, it's already starting. At the end of last year, the Washington Post published a year-in-review article entitled 2013, the year that proved your paranoid friends are right. Everywhere you look, there's confirmation that conspiracies are real. They're happening every day. And we're not just talking about conspiracy to commit murder or conspiracies in the corporate world, things like collusion or price fixing. These types of conspiracies are before the courts every day. I'm talking about elite, powerful, unelected oligarchs who are trying to stage-manage events to their benefit. Call them the Bilderbergs, call them the CFR or the Illuminati. The names aren't important. The point is, more and more people are waking up to the fact that we are being lied to every day by our media, by our government, by our institutions. And that's a good thing. I look forward to the day when this type of programming is mainstream. But that's a few years off. And so we continue to toil in the shadows. In the uh, second half of this hour, our resident paranormal expert, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, will be here for a paranormal news roundup. Because there are a number of interesting items in the news recently that I'd like her to comment on. Uh, a British professor in Manchester, England, for example, claiming he's captured photographic evidence for the existence of fairies. There's an eight-year-old girl in the slums of Rio de Janeiro who's said to be performing miracles, healing people with a simple touch of her hand. And one that's uh, most interesting, exorcisms, a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church that's only mentioned in hushed tones. Exorcisms are being embraced by the psychiatric community, but they've changed the name, and uh, now they're calling it spirit release therapy. 
Spirit Release Therapy. Hmm. Well, we'll find out what that's all about. Rosemary Ellen Guiley in about a half hour right here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, but there is something also headed our way in tomorrow night, in fact, Passover. Assuming you have clear skies, you can look up in the sky and behold a blood moon, a total lunar eclipse, but a blood red, and it's only the first of four blood moons coming our way between now and September 2015. Four blood moons all landing on Jewish high holidays, or feasts of the Lord. And the four blood moons will in fact bookend, two on one side and two on the other, a complete solar eclipse, all within the next year and a half. Four blood moons, a solar eclipse, all coinciding with four feasts of the Lord. The odds are, to say the least, astronomical. But, is there something else going on? Do these four blood moons, coinciding with four feast days, presage something? The end of days, the coming of the terrible day of the Lord, the great tribulation, Jacob's troubles. Well, my guest in the first half of this hour is about to explain all about the coming blood moon tetrad. Mark Blitz is founder of El Shaddai Ministries in Washington State. He's a well-known and popular commentator on the Feasts of the Lord. Pastor Blitz has spoken at congregations and conferences in Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, and right here in Canada, as well as throughout the United States. He is the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Listen, as uh, we speak... Tomorrow night, we're going to have the first of these total, total lunar eclipses. And before we get into, uh, you know, the, the biblical meaning of, of moons and how God uses the moon and the sun as signposts and, and, and the significance of the feasts and when the two coincide, we need to do some definitions here. S- strictly speaking, from an astronomical point of view, what is a blood moon? Sure. A blood moon is a total lunar eclipse when the moon goes completely behind the earth in its umbra is what it's called. And it turns blood, uh, a total blood red. Uh, it's because of as the, the sunlight rays go through our atmosphere, uh, the lighter and the blue shorter rays get reflected out. And it's the red longer rays that hit the moon. And so the moon has this total blood red look and so the the umbra i guess then is that's the earth's shadow is that right yes and then there's uh, on either side of it is what is called the penumbra and sometimes there's lunar eclipses that are called a penumbral lunar eclipse because it doesn't it, it's just at an angle it's not totally behind the earth now how uh, how common or uncommon is a blood moon fantastic question that's uh, that's a one of the smartest questions I've had asked, and the reason why is this. NASA records over the last 5,000 years that there have been only 3,479 total lunar eclipses. And that means, on an average, you only have one total lunar eclipse every year and a half. And here we have four within a year and a half. But can they be predicted? 
Can you predict when blood moons are coming? Oh, oh you bet. That, yeah, NASA has 5,000 years. They can go forward 2,000 years. They can go backward 3,000 years because it was created scientifically. Uh, God is, uh, when he created this thing, he knew what he was doing. And so we can know exactly what year, what, what minute, where they're going to be seen, how long they're going to be seen. It, it's all math. Could they have done that in ancient times? I don't know. Uh, I think uh, uh, with a pen and a paper, they might have been able to figure some of these things out. You know, I mean, they were pretty smart back then. Sure. But I don't know. I don't know how far in advance they could have gone. Okay. Now, so tomorrow night, we're going to get the first in a series. They're calling it the, the Tetrad, meaning a series of four blood moons, which will, will span basically a year. It'll, uh, it'll start right. it's tomorrow Right. It's a year night. and a half. And the reason why it's called the Tetrad is because there's four in a row with no partial or penumbral in between them. Now, how uncommon is that? That has only happened, okay, uh, especially on the feast days, only eight times in the last 2,000 years. Eight times in the last 2,000 years. So this is that quite You've had these falling four in a row on the feast days. All right, and we'll get into these feast days in a moment. Now, there's also a solar eclipse uh, coming, uh, is there not? Do these not do these lunar eclipses not bookend the solar eclipse? Yes, they do. There is a total solar eclipse that is uh, falling on uh, the biblical calendar. It's on Nisan one, but on our calendar, uh, you're going to see it. Let me see what I have here. It's right on Nissan 1. It's you know, right in April. And then a solar, e- a partial solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah. All right. Now, let's go into the Bible, and, and let's talk about how we can understand, I guess, God's clock or God's calendar and how he uses the sun and the moon as signposts. What is the significance of that? Oh, it's huge. Uh, a lot of the problem is our English language doesn't really give the correct translation to uh, Bible verses. In Genesis 1.14, God said he created the sun and the moon, we think, for light and heat. But the first thing he says is for signs or signals. And then it says for seasons, days, and years. Now, when we read seasons, days, and years, we think of our normal calendar. But that's a wrong interpretation. The Hebrew word translated as season is moed, and it also is translated as another word, feast, in Leviticus 23. So does the word mean fall, or does it mean food? Actually, they're both wrong. It means an appointed time, mm. like Passover is an appointed time when this a blood moon is falling, uh, you know, tomorrow night. And so this is incredible that God created the sun and the moon to send signals on his feast days, and here that's what we see happening. So when we see a blood moon or when we see a solar eclipse, and when, in, in particular when they coincide with these feast days, which we'll discuss in a moment, we are supposed to stand up and take notice we are being sent a message. Exactly. You got it. Pastor Mark Blitz is with us, the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. All right, so... Let's talk about the feast days that come into play on these uh, four blood moons that are coming over the next year and a half. Talk to me about these feast days. Okay. Well, they're falling on Passover and then also on the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as Sukkot. And they're falling on these feast days two years in a row. Now, Passover, we know, is when... uh, uh, 
uh, Jesus died. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, many Christians aren't familiar with it, but in Zechariah 14, it talks about how God coming to earth and tabernacling among men. And uh, the Jews were asked to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So the whole concept is God tabernacling among us. And so here you have these two blood moons, two years in a row, on Passover when he died, and then on Tabernacles when he wants to come and dwell with us. And the again, these uh, blood moons are bookending a solar eclipse. Does the solar eclipse fall on an important feast day? Oh my goodness, yes. It falls on the first day of Nisan. Now, that is the very day that the fire fell from heaven at the inauguration ceremony or grand opening ceremony of Moses' tabernacle and lit the fire on the altar. So it is a, it's a very significant day. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and then the solar eclipse, uh, the next solar eclipse is on Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets, which is incredible. Now, that solar eclipse happens, the, the second uh, solar eclipse yes. happens when? It happens two weeks before the uh, total lunar eclipse on the Feast of Tabernacles. So here in 2015, the religious year was to begin on Nisan 1, and here we have this total solar eclipse. Two weeks later, a total lunar eclipse, followed by another solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah, two weeks later by a total lunar eclipse on the Feast of Tabernacles, and it is a supermoon. And many people may not be aware, but being a supermoon is incredible. Okay, so let's just review here. The blood moons, the first is coming April 15th, and for some of my listeners, it'll already have occurred. Uh, that'll be on the Jewish Passover. And then yeah. the next one comes on the Feast of Tabernacles, which is October, October the 8th, 8th of 2014. Right. And then the next one comes when? Well, the total solar eclipse is on March 20th. Okay. And then the next one is April 4th, the total blood moon on Passover, followed by the another solar eclipse on Rosh Hashanah, which is September 13th, followed by the last super blood moon on September 28th, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right. So when has this happened previously, when blood moons have coincided with important feast days? And what happened on those occasions? Well, that's what's incredible. The last time it happened was 1967 and 68 when Israel recaptured Jerusalem. During the Six-Day War, okay. Exactly. And the time before that was 1948 when they became a nation. <coughs> Sorry. All right, so blood moons in, was it 48 or 49 and 50? I guess it came right after the nation of Israel was assembled, or did it happen right in 48? No, 49 and 50. Okay, so after the nation had been assembled. Correct. Giving the Jews a, home li a homeland for the first time in thousands of years, obviously a very significant date. And then before that, I understand there was another occasion. <clears throat> yes, which is incredible. The Spanish Inquisition began in, well, 1492 is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and they kicked all the Jews out of Spain and Portugal. And so here, right after that, in 1493 and 1494, you have these four blood moons. For those who would say, for those who would say, Pastor Blitz, that this is just coincidental, and that you can look for dates and you can you can find meaning uh, in any particular calendar year, uh, I'll get you to address this when we come back from a break. But sure. I, I'd like you to address the skeptics out sure. there who would just say this is simply coincidental: four blood moons bookending a solar eclipse. 
uh, and coinciding with important feast days. It's occurred in the past on significant dates, particularly uh, significant to the Jewish people. Just a coincidence. Mark Blitz will address that. When we come back, you're listening to The Conspiracy, Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. And we are back with Pastor Mark Blitz, the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. So again, to the skeptics, the debunkers, Mark, who would say this is merely coincidence to have four blood moons on significant Jewish feast days. Well, I don't know how you can call it coincidence when it's only happened eight times in 2,000 years. And when you look at at least the last three times, they were hugely significant. Not only that, get a load of this. In 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, you can go to NASA's website, and there were solar and lunar eclipses in 69, 70, and 71 A.D., all surrounding the destruction of the temple. You go back further to the time when Jesus died. In 32 and 33 A.D., solar lunar eclipses all over the biblical calendar. These things don't happen. If it, to the naysayers, I go, prove me wrong. You go to NASA's website, and, and you prove me wrong. Now, I'm hearing, speaking of NASA, Mark, I'm hearing that these days NASA is being rather hush-hush about this whole thing. What's that all about? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure. I knew they took their website down for a while. Right, right. Uh, and then they put it back up again, and they had made some changes and things. But I can't speak on their behalf, but it definitely looks suspect. Do you think that they're simply trying to, uh, they're anticipating some, what they might term as hysteria, and they're trying to, to calm people down? Is that what it's about? Or... It, or uh, is there something maybe more sinister afoot? Well, I don't. Uh, I I would not uh, want to presume anything more sinister. I do know that a few years ago that uh, President Obama installed a Muslim to oversee it. To oversee NASA. Yeah, the the website or NASA. Oh, the yeah. website. Okay. Yeah, I, I in NASA, I believe. Interesting. All right. So uh, let's let's go to the the, the Bible uh, and and what it has to say about you know these solar or lunar eclipses. Um, first of all, in the Old Testament, I think there's something in Joel about the sun shall be turned into darkness or something. I don't yeah. have that in front of me, but what, what does the Old Testament say about these signposts? Well, that's, what, that's a great question. Here's the reason why. Do you know in Joel, three times it talks about the sun turning to sackcloth and the moon to blood or turning dark. Well, guess what? It mentions it like three times, and it bookends this verse. God is going to judge all the nations who are trying to divide the land of Israel. Now, hello, look at what's been going on. Everyone's trying to divide the land of Israel. The United States, uh, our State Department, the nations of the world, this big push to divide the land of Israel. Well, I think these are like four flashing red warning lights at an intersection saying, you better be careful if you cross. I think these are really a warning uh, from the heavens not to try to divide the land of Israel or judgment will come. So, so you really see these, uh, this tetrad of blood moons coming down the pipe starting tomorrow night as a harbinger of, what, the beginning of the tribulation? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. I think what I see these harbingers of, and again, it's important to take note, I'm not saying anything's going to happen on the specific day of the eclipse, but I think, as you said, they're harbingers of trouble coming. Number one, when you look at the past, and I'm just wanting to be a scientific observer here. 
What happened in 48? A biblically prophetic war with Israel. What happened in 67? A biblically prophetic war with Israel. So there's a good chance sometime the next year and a half, especially when you look at what's happening with Iran, with Syria, Moscow, all these things, there's a good chance that's going to happen anyway. And this is just, uh, I mean, people see that even without these blood moons. So I, I see that this is, uh, you know, a, a, an acknowledgement from the heavens. The other thing is a global economic collapse. And we're reading about that all over in the news, and I'll tell you why I say that. <clears throat> when you understand the, the Shemitah cycle or the seven-year cycle, this is where the bankruptcy laws came from in America, where every seven years you could claim bankruptcy. It's based on the biblical law where there was an economic reset in the seventh year. That's right, like a jubilee. Like a jubilee. Exactly. Like a jubilee. I, I've talked to uh, to uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Kahn about that, and it is fascinating, talking about oh. harbingers, sure. Well, exactly, because in 2001, on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month, the seventh year, here with the Dow falls 7%. Exactly seven years later, 2008, on Rosh Hashanah, a little 29, the Dow falls 7%. And now here again in 2015 on Rosh Hashanah, we have a solar eclipse coming, and it could be our third strike. And then, yes, if you dial it back, Back to uh, was it uh, just after the uh, uh, the nine eleven attacks? Of course, you had another huge stock market uh, collapse. Yeah, right, right. That was yes, that was uh, two thousand one. That's the first. That was the end of the Shemitah year. And you dial it back further to nineteen ninety four. That was the Shemitah year, and I believe that's when the warning actually took place. If you remember the Shoemaker Levy comet when Jupiter was struck by twenty one fragments. Yes. Most people aren't aware of it, but it happened on the weekend of the 9th of Av, the very same day the temple was destroyed twice. It's when the spies brought the bad report. I mean, that day is a day of judgment. And the Torah portion that weekend was Deuteronomy, uh, which in Hebrew was translated as Devarim, or in English, these are the words. So it's almost like a judgment is striking Jupiter on Judgment Day, the 9th of Av, and God is saying, these are the words. I'm trying to tell you something. Well, 21 divided by 3 is 7. So I felt the next three Shemitah years were going to be sh uh, times of judgment. And that's what we had in 2001. That's what we had in 2008. And now here could be the third strike. In fact, in 2008, with the, the, uh, the stock uh, index, didn't it fall something like 777? Points? Exactly. It was fell 777 points. It was a 7% drop on the $700 billion failed bailout, uh, producing a $700 billion loss on the first day of the seventh month in the uh, seventh year. I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask you what happened in October 1987 or going back to the stock market crash in 29. Were those jubilee years as well? Do we know? I, I don't uh, know if – I'd have to go back and think for a minute to see if they were the Shemitah years or not this, in the seven-year cycle. But uh, there is a lot of uh, things out showing uh, the seven-year cycle of the stock market, and that seventh year is not a good year. Uh, going back to the blood moons and, and um, uh, or a solar eclipse, for example, and I know that it's often mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, for example, sure. where Jesus is talking about yeah. the, the connection between the, the, a solar eclipse and tribulation. What, is it, what does he say exactly? Right. Well, uh, uh, I'll give you an exact verse in Luke twenty one twenty five. Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon. Well, I mean, hello, he said in Genesis 1.14, he created the sun and the moon to send signs. And now in Luke, he's saying, hey, guess what? There's going to be signs in the sun and the moon. He's just confirming uh, what he's saying in Genesis. And all I'm doing is connecting those dots and saying, hey, 
when we see these signs in the sun and the moon on the biblical feast days, I believe God is trying to tell us something. Now, I'm not the one to interpret it and say this is what he's saying, but all I'm doing is saying this is what I'm reading. So now let's try to figure out, you know, what could he be trying to tell us? Uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and is. terrible day of the Lord comes. That's Acts mm. 2. Yes, and he's quoting Joel. And I, these could be, and I don't know if it's the first one or the last one, but uh, and which means the tribulation could start after the last one. You know, so I don't know. I feel like my role is more of a watchman, letting people know what I see. Kind of like, you know, in the old TV shows, you would see the horses kicking up dust off in the distance, and you didn't know if it was a friend or foe coming. I see these things as God kicking up the dust in the distance, and, and I don't know what's coming, but I think we need to be alert. Um, I'm going to—this is obviously pure speculation, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting. As we're approaching this uh, tetrad of, of blood moons, and the first one again— tomorrow night, a series of four blood moons over the next year and a half, all four blood moons coinciding with an important Jewish feast day. And of course, those feast days, I know you would argue we should also be uh, marking and and celebrating as Christians. Uh, uh, But I'm wondering whether, it's interesting that recently we had uh, the state of Israel closing a number of embassies around the world, (laughs) whether, whether in fact... Um, Israeli intelligence or the Israeli military are also paying attention to this, these harbingers and preparing for something. I think you could very well be right. That's the scuttlebutt that I hear as well. This has never happened before, and it could be they're pulling their people out of their embassies before a strike on Iran. Interesting. What, what would you say to those who might argue, well, this simply then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, I, uh, who am I to presume the presidents of the nations are listening to me, for heaven's sake? You know, uh, <laughs> you know I think that um, uh, these are warning shots from the heavens, and we need to be paying attention. If something happens, you know, uh, all I can say is, hey, you know, God was trying to warn us. So for those who haven't witnessed a blood moon, what are we going to see tomorrow night? If you, Are you going to go outside? Sure. Are you going to look at this? What's it going to mm-hmm. look like? Well, it, it'll be on the East Coast. Uh, I think totality is at 3 in the morning. On the West Coast, it's midnight. And uh, here in Seattle, we probably won't see anything. There'll be clouds. All right. <laughs> but people can go to, uh, I think it's the Griffith Observatory. You know, there's different websites, scientific websites, that everyone can see it on the Internet right in their home if it's cloudy. But believe it or not, I have a friend of mine that is flying me to Michigan, and he has a little plane, and we're going to go up above the clouds and try to take some good pictures. Oh, is that right? You're going to do that? Yeah. Good for you. And, and, and what is it, I mean, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be, other than the color, is it going to be an exceptionally large moon or? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it'll, it'll be uh, definitely, you know, a blood red. And, it, you know, it starts, you can see it slowly getting dark until it reaches totality. And then it moves and it, uh, you know, uh, goes partial the other direction. But it's, uh, I'm not sure if it'll be exceptionally large. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back to NASA's website to see uh, how many miles away it is, because the the moon's orbit around the Earth is elliptical, and so every month uh, when it's at its closest point, if it's at perigee, it's a supermoon. Well, this month it's not uh, at its closest point, so I'm not exactly sure. But it'll. I think it's going to be fantastic. And uh, I'm guessing you'll also perhaps be. Um, in in prayer as you witness this moon? 
Oh, you bet. We'll have just uh, finished our Seder. We have a, uh, last year we did a Passover Seder with 1,500 people. I think it was one of the world's largest Seders. And uh, this year we cut it back, and we're going to live stream it instead to thousands of people all over the world. And so that's on Sunday night. And then Monday morning I catch the plane to Michigan so I can be up night photographing it, and I go back to Seattle Tuesday. But it definitely this is Passover. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a holy time. It's a time for prayer. So uh, definitely this is, a, in one sense, it's a somber time. It's a prayerful time, and especially when you reflect on what happened 2,000 years ago when Messiah died. So it's definitely a uh, significant uh, event. And and the the um, the final blood moon that occurs was it September thirteenth, uh, September twenty eighth, twenty fifteen. Yeah. Uh, do you intend to be flying hither and yon to, to 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 get a good glimpse of that one if it's not available in Seattle? I I'm going to be in Jerusalem. There is no way. I am not going to miss seeing a super blood moon over the city of Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles when all nations are there celebrating. I am in, I'm I'm renting a hotel. In for the full nine (laughs) yards. Yeah, every year I do a tour. Uh, this year we have 80 people coming here in a couple weeks. We're going to be in Israel the end of April, 1st of May this year with 80 people. And people are begging me to do a tour. But I tell you what, once this gets out in Israel and around the United States, every hotel room is going to be booked solid within the next few months. Just final word, and we only have about 10 seconds. Are you worried? No, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting. Well, Mark, fascinating, and again, we can uh, look forward to that first of four blood moons tomorrow night. Mark Blitz is the author of Blood Moons, Decoding the Imminent Heavenly Signs. Appreciate your time, Mark. Hey, thank you. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communications, spiritual growth and development, problem hauntings, and portals, or geographic areas of intense paranormal activity. She spends a great deal of time out in the field conducting investigations and research. She has done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. She joins us once a month here on The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Oh, I've been doing great, Richard. I had a fantastic trip to England where I did some lecturing and a lot of sightseeing. And I'm back in the swing of things in the U.S. now. Well, for a paranormal investigator, I'm thinking, like, going to merry old England. I don't know why I think this, but this, uh, to me, when uh, I've been to England once, and I just felt like everywhere you stepped, there were ghosts everywhere. I mean, literally and figuratively, if you know what I mean. So much history there. The whole country has uh, a great haunted history. In fact, you can ask the question, what isn't haunted in England rather than what is? Because everywhere you go, uh, there's a ghost story. Precisely, yes. Well, listen, welcome back. And uh, I wanted to get your take on a number of interesting stories. We'll do sort of a, a paranormal news roundup. And the first one is right in your wheelhouse. And that is... Um, a story that uh, ran in the uh, the Mirror, speaking of merry old England, the London Daily Mirror, and it's a picture 
that is being touted as photographic proof that fairies are real. Now, this is something that you've written about extensively. I think you've written a major encyclopedia about fairies. First of all, describe the picture, give us some history, and give me your take on it. There are uh, a couple of pictures here in the news article, and they show tiny little wing things. They look like moths with legs and arms and tiny little heads. And uh, there's, oh, um, about seven or eight of them, maybe closer to ten in uh, one photograph. And then there's another photograph where uh, it looks like a close-up showing uh, a couple of these things. I believe in fairies. I have seen photographs uh, of beings identified as fairies. These I'm very skeptical of. Uh, I've seen so many photographs with these moth-like things in them that people feel are fairies. Um, I, the, the gentleman who took these uh, claims that they haven't been altered, um, they look stick-like to me. They look, um, they just don't strike me as something that fairies would look like. On one hand, do we know what fairies should always look like? Well, there you in, go. In the end, I mean, uh, they, some they of them come see... in a lot of different shapes and sizes. But, but Richard, the thing is that most accounts of sightings of fairies, and you can go back into the 1800s on this, uh, and even earlier, back into the 1600s, fairies are not described as having wings. Uh, this was an art thing that, that um, uh, the Victorians did. They depicted fairies with wings and... Um, uh, it, when people have encounters with fairies, it's rarely with tiny little wing things. They're more like small people than anything else. Well, they are curious to look at, and some of them you can actually see other appendages. It looks like a pair of arms and the legs. And, yeah, you know, look at the source. It is, the, the, the photographer uh, is a university professor, I believe, from, is it Manchester University? Yes, and he's quite serious about fairies. Uh, they reminded me of the Cottingley fairy hoax. And I'm, I'm not accusing this person of perpetrating a hoax. Um, he could have photographed something that he, he thought uh, were genuine fairies, but those also were very small wing things. And um, I did uh, try and zoom in on them. They, the images start to fall apart with uh, too much zooming in on them. But they all have these very straight doll-like legs and very straight stick-like arms and tiny little heads that you can't um, discern uh, any detail about. So um, my assessment is the jury's out on these. Yes, until someone I'm can... very skeptical. Uh, I agree. And until at such time as someone can maybe capture one of those in a jar like we used to do with fireflies. <laughs> Uh, listen, I want to get your take. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Uh, the website is visionaryliving.com. Uh, I want to get you, your take on this uh, remarkable story out of Brazil. Alani Santos, eight-year-old girl uh, who is said to perform miracles and can channel God to cure arth- arthritis, cancer, HIV, just by touching people. It almost sounds like uh, another uh, Brazilian who goes by the name of John of God. This could be something that's the genuine article because healing through touch has been documented back to ancient times. And, of course, Jesus did it. There were accounts in the the Bible of that. Uh, Faith healing is uh, something that takes place around the world. The saint literature is full of cases where people um, say that they were miraculously cured of all kinds of afflictions. And uh, there have been cases of 
uh, wonder children in the past doing this as well. There's um, kind of a downside to some of this faith healing because um, uh, in, in faith healing, people get in, into a very ecstatic state of consciousness, and of course they're very fervent, they want to believe that they're being healed, and, and I believe that intensity of emotion is very important to a miraculous cure. But there are cases where people say they're cured and then they have a relapse later on. Um, so uh, there might be some of those cases, but um, this child could be doing the, the real thing. Let's take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to talk about uh, the case of Alani Santos here on The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary Ellen Guiley in studio. Back with more in a moment. We are back with our Paranormal Roundup with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. And we're talking about eight-year-old Alani Santos. Uh, some remarkable videos on YouTube. In one, uh, she's laying her hands on a, uh, an elderly woman who walks with a cane. Uh, and then afterwards, she's walking without the use of a stick. Uh, she's seen healing a man who has been suffering, supposedly, from HIV for seven years. Uh, and all of this, uh, this uh, she's the daughter of um, a pastor in, uh, is it Rio, Rio de Janeiro, I believe, the slums of Rio de Janeiro. Not exactly the place maybe you would expect to find someone channeling God, or maybe that's precisely the point. That's exactly where you would expect to find her. Uh, a final word on Alani before we move on, Rosemary. Uh, from the perspective of, re- of religion, it's often said that uh, God works wonders through the innocence, uh, the people who are the innocents of the world, and certainly a child would fall into that category. So uh, I think uh, we need to keep a watch on her, and uh, the, the cases of the healings do need to be examined by medical experts and well-documented. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, she might very well be be doing the genuine article. Rosemary, you and I have talked a lot over the years about demonic possession, and now uh, there's a, um, a psychologist in the United Kingdom, a Dr. Terence Palmer, who's the first person in the UK to earn a PhD in what they're now calling, sort of giving demonic possession more of a scientific name, they're calling it spirit release therapy. What is this spirit release therapy? Basically, it's a polite term for exorcism. Uh, it's uh, like uh, using the word intuition instead of psychic. It just doesn't carry that connotation that exorcism has. When we think of exorcism, we think of people being possessed by demons and horrible things happening, priests getting thrown around like um, in, in the movie The Exorcist. Spirit release therapy is actually very old, and uh, the, the term has been around a while. Uh, the first medical cases that were well documented go back to the 1930s. Dr. Carl Wickland and his wife, who was a medium, Anna, uh, talked about how people's medical and mental afflictions could be attributed to spirits who were attached to them. They could be uh, discarnate um, human beings who had passed on who were looking for vehicles to satisfy their physical cravings and desire to have a body again. They could be non-human entities. But Wickland made the case for uh, spirit involvement in a lot of our uh, health issues. And other researchers since then have followed in his footsteps. Dr. William Baldwin uh, was an American quite well known for this. He actually believed that uh, most of us walk around with all kinds of spirit attachments, all the time. Many of them are kind of 
uh, low level, and uh, sometimes they get to be very problematic. So here we have an example in the UK where uh, this is coming more into um, the lexicon of uh, therapies available for people. When I was going to England a lot back in the 1990s, I became acquainted with a medium by the name of um, Eddie Burke. And uh, he was involved in forming an organization to promote spirit releasement therapy. And I think we're going to see more of this in the future. It's going to become more of an accepted idea in our culture. Uh, But it sounds like some of these more modern-day practitioners, uh, like this Dr. Terrence Palmer, uh, they're saying things like, well, spirit attachment and spirit release therapy, therapy you know, aren't based on, on faith or sort of the religious idea of demonic possession. It almost sounds like they're saying you don't necessarily have to believe in it. It's just a technique, and it seems to work. Exactly. And I think it's a good thing to get this sort of thing out of the religious arena, that uh, if we do indeed have spirit interference, and, and I believe this myself, I see so many cases of it in my paranormal investigation work, um, getting it away from uh, a religious context where we have, we have to describe it in terms of satanic involvement and demons and things like that, uh, it hinders Uh, the ability of therapists to address it in a more objective way. So putting it into a scientific perspective, into the arena of psychotherapy and and these these other kinds of um, more conventional treatments, I think uh, will actually help more people in the long run. Right. But aren't aren't these spirit release therapists, aren't they basically secularists or materialists who are saying, you know, I don't believe in a spirit realm. I believe that these people have some sort of mental health issue or physical physical ailment. But if it helps them by, you know, making them believe I'm doing an exorcism, then so be it. Well, some of them, yes, uh, do take that approach. And, and others um, really talk about actual spirits who are attached to people. They become attached uh, through for various reasons. And uh, so I think we're, we're seeing a spectrum of approaches here to spirit uh, releasement therapy. And um, w- once again, um, if it helps someone, then uh, whatever approach, whatever label we put on it, uh, we may have to look at, you know, do the ends justify the means? And um, it, it's like uh, when people have contact with the dead uh, through dreams and visitations and in waking life, uh, some therapists don't believe that the dead actually visit. I believe they do. Uh, but their approach is, well, if that helps the person overcome their grief, then uh, let's not disturb what uh, the experiencer actually believes. It'll be interesting. So I think we're going to see a variety of approaches here. Sure, and it'll be interesting to see how the sort of the official exorcists uh, in the Catholic Church react to this, because again, these spirit release therapists, their approach is sort of stripping away any of the uh, any of the sort of the the, uh, the sacrament associated with with exorcism. It's actually competition for them. I suppose you could look at it that way. Yes, absolutely. 
Rosemary Allen Guiley is with us. She joins us uh, once a month here on the program, and we're doing our Paranormal News Roundup. Now, this story I find fascinating, and uh, there's an astronomer uh, and a mathematician, to boot, by the name of Bernard Carr, who's on the record as saying that the spiritual phenomena that we experience is something that actually exists in other dimensions, that many of the phenomena experience but can't explain within the physical laws of this dimension actually occur in other dimensions. What do you make of that, Rosemary? I think this is fascinating, and we're seeing more and more of this. Scientists attempting to put a scientific explanation on the paranormal. I do believe that we live in a multidimensional uh, reality, these 11 dimensions that are described in uh, quantum physics, and that we can um, find these other phenomena in these other dimensions, which is what Bernard Carr is saying, that um, uh, these uh, things like out-of-body experiences, um, ghosts, hauntings, uh, even mystical experiences, near deaths. Uh, all of these could take place in uh, other dimensions that we have access to. And from an occult perspective, the astral plane uh, would be one of those dimensions. And um, from an occult perspective, again, a lot of these experiences are explained as taking place on the astral plane. So we have kind of a merging of ideas here, just a different terminology uh, most people in occultism would be thrilled if science could put uh, an explanation to these phenomena uh, because we live in a science-based world, and a lot of people believe that if, if science doesn't say it, it doesn't exist, it's not real. So uh, having that grounding in science w would be very important to our ability to accept, understand, and study these kinds of experiences. People are having them anyway, regardless of what science has to say about it, so we need some catching up to do. Right, and something is, is only considered paranormal or supernatural until such time as there is a sort of more prosaic explanation for it. Uh, exactly. So uh, Bernard Carr does have some other company. There are other scientists who uh, have been uh, probing these ideas and uh, trying to explain uh, the paranormal from the quantum physics perspective. We still have the problem of subjectivity. Our experiences in the paranormal are essentially subjective. They can't be replicated in a laboratory. They can't be um, quantitative in any sort of description at all. Uh, all we have are anecdotal accounts throughout history that have certain patterns to them. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is um, an important uh, avenue for science to explore. Scientists need to be able to address the paranormal without fear of being criticized by their colleagues, rejected by their institutions, and uh, ostracized, as Carl Jung was. He was called a mystic in his day, which uh, at, the at the time, the term mystic was like a career killer. Uh, and we, we still see the same sort of thing today for scientists attempting to, to study these things. Well, um, Einstein talked about, you know, there being at least four dimensions, uh, the, the fourth one being time or time-space. And, you know, we've, 
I think we can wrap our heads around that. But now theoretical physicists are talking about at least 11 dimensions. Is there sort of a pecking order? Like where is the dimension that we live in sort of in on the pecking order? Are we in the middle? Are we at the highest or are we at the lowest? Uh, well, we live in three dimensions, and that would be the lowest or the densest, the physical realm of matter. And uh, then the fourth dimension is time. And then there are these other descriptions, um, metaphysical descriptions, really, of these, these other dimensions where uh, we would try and map them. And there are different ideas as to how these dimensions should be mapped, you know, like where do you place the afterlife, where do you place angels and uh, uh, non-corporeal spirits, uh, where do you place uh, other beings? And uh, I believe that these dimensions are attached to the earth and uh, that uh, all of these things literally exist around us all the time. We're just not aware of them because in, in our, our three-dimensional reality, we're vibrating, so to speak, at different frequency rates and uh, we don't normally have access to these other areas. But when people have these paranormal experiences or even mystical experiences, uh, some sort of bridge occurs that uh, we are able to tune in to these, um, these other realities that are here all the time anyway. I, I liken sort of the, the, the paranormal or the supernatural. Imagine you're sort of standing over a koi pond. Maybe you've got a goldfish pond in your backyard, and the fish only know what's underwater. Then you stick your finger from above down into the water, and they're saying, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> they have exactly. no concept. It's a fascinating area, and uh, delight to talk to you once again, Rosemary. The website, visionaryliving.com. We'll talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.